Well, we're in this study of Acts chapter 2 as a springboard. We're discussing the awe of the Lord and how the early church walked in awe. And awe is the overwhelming sense of God's favor and mercy expressly exhibited by the cross of Christ. It says that the early church lived in a, in a state of, of awe as they saw what God had done among them. And I've been saying the last few weeks that in this passage, there, there are four things that feed the life of awe. There's being devoted to, which means to be fully committed to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship or relationship, to the breaking of bread or worship, and to prayer. And I said the breaking of bread is a statement about, about, about worship. And last week, I defined worship as the awe and adoration of the self-revealing triune God as the one who is incomparably worthy of our worship and praise. It includes an awareness of his good kingly rule and the amazing grace found at the cross of Christ. The worship is for our good. It gives us focus. It gives us renewed energy and passion. It, it takes away despair and fills us with a sense of rightness. It takes away a sense of, of guilt and fills us with the glory of forgiveness as we see the wonder of the cross. When John Calvin, one of the reformers, was preparing, writing a, a prologue to a commentary on the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments, he, he, he said this. He said, God first shows himself to be the one who has the right to command and to whom obedience is due. But he says, in order not to seem to constrain men by necessity alone, he also attracts them with the sweetness of declaring himself to be the God of the church who blesses. It is as if he has spoken and said the following, I have chosen you as my people not only to benefit you in the present life, but also to bestow upon you the blessedness of the life to come. Calvin says God sweetens his, his commands by showing us the promise of life that's found in following him. For example, he says in the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall have no other gods before you. You should not make unto yourself an image and worship the image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love or mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And, and what this passage says, I think, is that, is, that, is, is that if you don't worship the living God and you run after other gods and you bow down to them and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren see that, they will in all likelihood many, many times mimic or imitate the behavior they see. And it will not be good for their souls. It will bring destruction to their lives. Says, but if you worship me and you bow down to me and you love me and you serve me with all of your heart and with joy and singing and laughter, I want to visit my mercy on the thousands of generations that are coming. So you see the difference. Benevolent mercy to the thousand generations and this observable reality to the third and fourth generation. God wants to bless us. So he sweetens his commands with promises. Or, for example, the fifth commandment, it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. If you honor your father and your mother, you'll be blessed. 
God sweetens his commands. And so, so worship is for my benefit. In the book of Philippians, Paul is dealing with some heresy that downgraded the person of Christ and mocked holiness and elevated the works of the flesh and just made disparaging comments about faith. And this is what he says. He says, finally, my brothers, chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for your souls. It's a safeguard for you. He says, now, how, how do we combat false teaching? We glory in the cross. How do we walk in the way of the Lord? We glory in the cross. So worship is good for my soul. I come to a, a story this morning that many of you are going to be familiar with, and you've heard it numerous times. This a story from the life of King David that comes out of the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, verse 11, and I'll just tell it to you. The passage starts off by saying that at the time of the year when kings are usually in the field with their troops, David was not. He was at home. His troops were in the field. His men were in the field. And David couldn't sleep, and so he got up, and he was walking around the roof of his palace, and he looked over the wall, and he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. And she was married. And he lusted in her heart after her. He sent for her. They brought her to him. They had intimacy. And he sent her out. She sends a message back a few weeks later, David, I and pregnant. And so her husband is in the field. He hasn't been home for months. And so David gets an emergency pass for her husband, brings him home, congratulates him for being a wonderful warrior, and says, go and enjoy the fruit of marriage. And Uriah, her husband, says, I, I, I can't do that. My men are bivouacked in the field. My, man, my men are living with, with deprivation. I, I can't go in and be with my wife because I, I just can't do that. And I thought that must have really been a goad or a thorn in David's spirit. Here's a man of nobility that he's trying to deceive, trying to get him to go see his wife so he can say, oh, congratulations, your wife is pregnant a few weeks later. And so the next night, David throws a banquet for Uriah and braces him and gets him a little tipsy with some wine and then pushes him towards his wife's house and toward the marriage bedchamber. But Uriah stops and he sleeps in the doorway and does not go in. So people saw him sleeping outside the night before and now in the doorway and they realize he hasn't gone in because Uriah is a noble man of valor. And so David sends him back to one of his buddies, the general. And then he also sends a message, and he says, I want you to make sure that Uriah is in a part of a battle that cannot be won in the heat of the battle where there are numerous arrows and stones and spears being thrown. He must die on the field of conquest. And so the day comes, and that happens and his buddy, the general Joab, sends a message back to David saying, we had a small skirmish today and several men were killed. And among them were Uriah, was Uriah the Hittite. And so David says, Uriah is dead. He's a noble man. 
and he brings his widow into his house and says, I will marry Bathsheba. And he thinks nobody knows but Bathsheba, Joab, me, and God. So, so David has been guilty of coveting a man's wife, of stealing another person's property, of adultery, of multiple murder, and of being a liar time after time after time. That's King David, a man whom the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. He's gone from a position of broken obedience and worship to a place of arrogance. And he's sitting on the throne, and he says, no one knows. I pulled it off. The book of Hebrews says that, that there is an initial exhilaration at times, and it's called the passing pleasures of sin, but it doesn't last. I mean, there was a time David thought, this young, beautiful woman now is my consort, my wife, and I pulled it off. And there was, there was a thrill there for a while, but because he belonged to God, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him off the hook. And so he's sitting on the throne. He says, no one knows. I pulled it off. I am in the clear. But he was miserable. And in the context of this, he writes a, a psalm, Psalm 32. And he starts off by what he knows to be true, what he eventually experienced. And then he goes through what he walked through. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he says this, but, or for. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. David said, you know, I was on the throne no one knew. I looked good. I looked like I was in charge. No one could tell, but I was miserable. There are people here today who, who, who see, it's not when we sin, we run to Jesus. We confess our sin, and we, we try to make right broken relationships. We try to make right stuff that we've done wrong and because we walk, want to walk in obedience and have the joy of the Lord. But there are some people who know Jesus who say, I'm not going to go to Christ with this. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to embrace this. And you know what happens? You're miserable because the Holy Spirit will not let you off the hook. There are people here today that are just miserable. You think about this relationship or this attitude or this broken, this broken uh, relationship with this guy. It's just miserable because the Holy Spirit will not let you off the hook. And that's David, sitting on the throne, everything's great, new wife. Yes, she's pregnant with Uriah's son, but Uriah was a great man, and he's miserable. Then the next chapter, there's a guy named Nathan who comes in. Nathan is a prophet of the Lord. Nathan has been communicated to by the Lord, and the Lord told him what had happened, and so Nathan goes in and tells David a story. He says, oh, great king, I have a story to tell you. There was a man who lived, and he lived in a little hovel. He was very poor. He had one lamb, and that lamb was a household pet. He fed the lamb from his bosom as he held him in his arms. 
And there was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy landowner who lived down the road who had thousands of acres, and he had tens of thousands of sheep and lambs, and he had somebody that came to town. He was going to have a feast and have lamb chops for supper. Instead of taking one of his thousands, one of his ten, of the 10,000 lambs, he went next door, and he took this man's only lamb, and he slaughtered it, and he fed his guest. This is what happens. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity upon this man. Close quote. And Nathan stood there and he said, oh, great king, you are that man. Later down, after Nathan gives out the response and what's going to happen, David says, I have sinned against God. Now, I thought about this. Here's the king. He's got guards all around him. He's powerful. And this guy comes in. He's just a prophet. There's nothing special about him. He smells of the desert. He's, He's just Nathan. And he tells this wild story and makes an accusation. And David had every right to say, you for God seize him and throw him into the hole. But he doesn't. He says, I'm the man. Because David knew the Lord, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, would not let him off the hook. And there's a joy in being found out. It's a relief. He says, now I can breathe again because I need to deal with this. And I wasn't willing to confess. I am the man. And then he writes this well-known psalm, Psalm 51, which is about worship. And that's give you five or six principles and three application statements from Psalm 51. I'm going to walk with you through the psalm. As we go, we'll talk about it. He writes Psalm 51, which is a, an incredible psalm of confession and penitence. It starts off like this. Number one, David turns to the living God because the living God is full of steadfast love and he's abundant in mercy. He's not just merciful. David says, you're abundant in mercy. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he, he runs to the Lord. And he says, Lord, you are Steadfast in your love and you have abundant mercy. And I know the sin is destructive and it is blinding and it is rotten and it's cancerous and I am sick of it. I read this week on Monday, I picked up the newspaper and I read about the, this very tenuous ceasefire in Syria. You know, in Syria, 500,000 have been killed. Millions have been displaced in a country of 12 million people. It's not a big country. It's horrible. And so in this very tenuous ceasefire, the UNICEF, I think it was 19 or 21, I've forgotten, huge lorries, huge transfer trucks filled with medicine and clothing and food to go to these beleaguered cities like Aleppo and, and to give them some relief and some sustenance and some clean water for heaven's sake. But as they were going in, one of the rival groups, one of the groups there took some grenade launchers and some artillery, and they destroyed the trucks as they tried to go in. I thought, how stupid can you be? They're taking medicine and clothing and food to the people you claim to be trying to defend and help put together some type of, uh, of nation state, whatever that is. How stupid can you be? And then I thought, that's what I do when I sin. 
I take the relief and the kindness and the mercy and the fact that God wants me to flourish and, be, and go well, and, 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 and I, I blow up the lorry truck that has the provisions of grace. And so that's why we run to the cross. That's what David does. David says, I run to you because you're a steadfast love and you are abundant in mercy. And he says this, point two. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. What he means by that is ultimately all sin is against the living God. Yes, other people are involved. Yes, they should be compensated or asked forgiveness of, but, 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 but I sin against God. It says, my sin is ever before me. See, if you're a believer and you know Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, your sin is plain before your eyes until you confess it and repent and run away and make things right. It's just like a, a, a reel that's going on time after. They were sitting there and saying, I, I, I am an adulterer. I'm a murderer, multiple murderer. I, I am a liar. I am a thief. I am a coveting man. I am an adulterer. I'm a murderer. I'm a liar. I'm a coveter. I'm a thief. Time after time. This is Steve Tuck's son. Steve Tuck loves the Miami Hurricanes. That's his college team of choice. And I thought about this because I was thinking about Steve Tuck Sunday, but years ago, and this is not a very positive thing for Steve to think about, but he's in the early 1990s, and there was a team called the Miami Hurricanes, and they were the strongest football team in America college, on the college level. They were phenomenal. They were playing in a bowl game on New Year's Day against Alabama. Alabama was good, but not near as good as Miami. Miami was a three-touchdown favorite. And the bowl game unfolded, and Alabama just destroyed the heavily favored Miami Hurricanes. And one play I'll never forget, a Miami guy picked up a ball, and he was running in for a touchdown, and he thought he was all alone. He started showboating about 10 yards out, and an Alabama that's picture of guy caught up with him and stripped him of the ball and started running back the other way. It was an incredible play. Never forget it. That happened on New Year's Day, okay? Eight months later, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama for a pastor's conference at Beeson Divinity School my wife and I. And we go to the Galleria in Birmingham because she wants to shop. And we go. And we're at the Galleria and I always look for a bookstore when we still had bookstores in those days, you know, or a sports shop. And so there's a sports shop there. And as I go in, there's this big TV and they're playing the Alabama-Miami game. This is August, okay, eight months later. And I kind of hang out and I tell one of the guys, it's pretty cool you're showing the alabama Miami game from eight months ago. How often is that? I said, sir, we've done that nonstop since the day after the game. <laughs> says, that, that game is going every, every, every hour this store is open. That game is being shown. Now, that's what you call a fan. But that's what David's saying here. He said, you know, my, my sin was ever before me. You know, that's the, that is the, thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing that. Thank you for not letting us off the hook because God wants our flourishing. Sin wants to give us destruction and heartache and heart disease and cancer. Whatever. But go the way of the Lord. So, so you see, that's why he says, Restore to me, O Lord, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Thirdly, this is, I look at this. David says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, God, you've got to work in my life. David says, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm, I'm going to flee from it. I'm going to try to make things right. But, but you've got to do it. Let me just read verse 7 to 12. Purge me with hyssop, which is a, a branch. 
Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, and wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice, and, and hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities, and create in me a clean heart, O God, and, and renew a right spirit within me, and cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me, and restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And I go through this, and I'm saying, God, David is saying, God, you've got to do this ultimately. I'm a desperate man. You've got to purge me. You've got to wash me. You've got to heal me. You've got to let the bones that you've broken rejoice. You've got to hide your face from my sins. You've got to blot out my sins. You've got to create in me a clean heart. You've got to renew me with the right spirit. You've got to cast me not away from your presence. You've got to take not your Holy Spirit from me. You've got to restore to me the joy of my salvation. See, God's got to do it. So we come to worship saying, God, I am here, but you've got to act. Now we do our part. The psalmist says, if I had regarded iniquity or sin in my heart, God wouldn't hear my prayers. The book of Hosea says in chapter 10, it says it's time to break up your unplowed ground and seek the Lord until he comes upon you. I've got to deal with my junk. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing his last letter, and he says this, and there, there are two foundational principles in the life of a believer. Number one, the Lord knows those who are his. And number two, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. And he says, now in a large house, they're not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware. And some to honor and some to dishonor. I mean, gold and silver vessels, you toast people, you have lavish banquets, but clay and earthenware takes out the garbage. He says, if a man cleanses himself from sins, he'll be a vessel sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Therefore, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So, you know, you come before the Lord and say, Lord, I, 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 am, I have departed from every known sin. I've confessed my sin. I've run to the cross. I've made right what I could make right. But now I pray, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Oh, Lord, as I worship, I, I plead with you, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken be healed. God, you've got to do it. So we confess and we deal with it, but we say, God, come. The fourth thing I see in this passage is, is that there is a keen responsibility when God does restore us. When we do hear the words of forgiveness, it's a trite saying, I've heard it frequently, but you're blessed to be a blessing. God doesn't save us to live for ourselves. He saves us to live for others and to advance his kingdom. He saves us so we can pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven. David says in verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says, Lord, as you do this in my life, I'm going to be a man who speaks for you, who lives for you, who rules in your name, who walks in your name. 1 Peter 2 says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his light. So, so God saves us to be good stewards, to advance the kingdom to glory in his goodness. 
He saves us to walk in the joy of glad-hearted brokenness and not the arrogance of me-ism, self. A study was just released a few weeks ago. A study of 261 senior executives in the United States and our companies revealed that roughly 20% of the CEOs fit the psychological profile of a psychopath, which is the same ratio found among prison inmates. The study leader said typical psychopaths create a lot of chaos and tend to play people off each other to get their own way. And I thought, you know, if you're in any position of leadership, any position of leadership, you're called to be a servant. You're called to benefit other people. You're not called to build your own kingdom. You're not called to play people against each other. You're not called to say one thing in a board meeting and another thing at the water cooler. You're called to represent Jesus. Responsibility. The, the fifth thing is in this passage, David says with great clarity, God sees the heart. Verse 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, Lord, you will not despise. David said, I, there, there, was, there were many days in my life when my heart was fully engaged with God. But I became proud, and I became arrogant, I became powerful, and I still did the sacrificial routine. I still offered sacrifices as I thought, but my heart wasn't in it. And see, Jesus says that he's looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth, spirit. And so David says, I'm, I'm going back to square, square one. I, I've got to say with all my heart that God sees the heart. It's all about heart. It's all about really loving the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I, I am severely technologically challenged. I, people who work with me know that. I read recently about a new app by Microsoft entitled LoveBot. It's a smart new phone app that will automatically send messages to significant others telling them how much you love them. The man who developed says, quote, it looks 100% like it's coming from your own account. So, so you, you list 15 people, about every six or seven hours, a special message will come from you to them to tell them how wonderful you, they are to you and how much you really do love them. I thought, good grief. <laughs> really? And then I thought, that's kind of the way I do worship sometimes. I, uh, oh, I love you, Lord. Mm. But I'm holding on to this sin. I'm holding on to this mindset. And, and David said it's all about the heart. You know, before David was anointed as king, he was told this story many a time. Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and the, the oldest Eliab goes before Samuel, and Samuel says, boy, what a good-looking, broad-shouldered guy he is. And God says he's not the one. See, so he said, man... He says, I understand this, Samuel. God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 
And so they brought David in from the field, and God said, yeah, he's the one. He's the one. It's, it's all about the heart. So when I come to worship on a daily basis or here on the Lord's Day, it's my heart. So three statements. So worship is filled with joyful sobriety or glad desperation. When I come to the Lord, it's filled with joyful sobriety and glad desperation. And I say that because I think of, you know, I read the life of David and I go, what happened? I think of David as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, going to visit his brothers who were fighting the Philistines and the champion Goliath is thundering out his challenge. And David, just a little guy with cheese and bread delivered to, and some wine delivered to his brothers, says, who is this uncircumcised nine-foot-six mammoth of a Philistine that he should challenge the armies of the living God? Boom. Who is this dude? David, you're a shepherd boy. You're nothing. And he says it again. They bring him to Saul. He tries to put on Saul's armor, and he, he couldn't move. And David said, I'll, I'll just take my slingshot. And he picked up five stones. And Goliath laughed at him. And David says, you know, you can laugh, but I don't come in the name of David with a sword or a spear. I come in the name of the living God. And he killed Goliath, cut off his head. That's David. And, and then he has to go through this horrendous experience of being hunted by Saul, and he's trusting the Lord. And, and, and then he gets here, and I said, well, you know, what happened? And I don't want people to look at my life and say, gee whiz, what happened? And it can happen. So I come with, with glad-hearted desperation. I tell people frequently, I know men who are much finer, more talented, brighter, and more godly than I'll ever be, who blew it in their walk with the Lord. So I'm, I'm desperate. Well, I, think of, I think of David's son, Solomon. Solomon is, is, has gone through palace intrigue, near-death experience, and he becomes king. David dies. And there, Solomon has an Aladdin lamp experience. God appears to him in a dream and says, Solomon, what do you want? I will give it to you. And Solomon goes, you know, I need a heart of wisdom. First Kings 3. I need a heart of wisdom because I'm just a mere lad. I'm not that smart. I'm not that together. And I've got to rule this kingdom. And I need wisdom. And it pleased the Lord. And the Lord said, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give it to you. And because you didn't ask for wealth or honors, I'll throw that in as well. It was a good day. But then just a few chapters later, it says that the Lord said to Solomon, do not marry women outside of the covenant community of Israel, because if you do, they'll turn your hearts to child sacrifice. They'll turn your hearts to weird sexuality and behavior, and it, it won't be good. And he disregarded the voice of God, and it says Solomon married many foreign women, and they turned him from God. What happened, Solomon? From the brokenhearted, glad child in his mind who says, I need the wisdom of God to the arrogant disregard of God. It can happen. So I need glad-hearted, desperate worship. It saves me from despair. I need to see the goodness of the Lord. There are people here today that are just despairing. They're, they're despairing. Life is not good. It's, 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 life is tough. And I, I, sometimes 
years ago, I, when I was introduced to poetry and I read poetry, sometimes you read a poem and go, boom, it just hits you in the face. This is a, a poem that I was just reading and just, boom, it hit me. It's called Richard Corey by E.A. Robinson. Let me read it. It's a smart, very short poem. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked, but still he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning. And he glittered when he walked. And he was rich. Yes, richer than the king. And admirably schooled in every grace. And fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. And what Robinson is saying is that people can appear to have it all together and be doing great, but they're not. There are people here today who are desperate. Look outside of yourself. Look to the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I need to see the goodness of the Lord. The second thing is that David's forgiveness, understand this from the Old Testament, David's forgiveness and our forgiveness have the same point of reference, and that is the cross of Christ. David and the Old Testament saints were looking toward the coming Messiah. We look back upon the finished work of Messiah Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament sacrificial system foresignified the coming of one who would forever fulfill it. Listen to what Paul, a incredibly learned, bright Jewish Pharisee, says about that, who'd met Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, and we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a covering by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See that? In his forbearance, he had passed over the sins of the Old Testament saints because they were looking to the coming Messiah. It was to show his righteousness at the present moment so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. And I say to you, if you've never confessed that Christ is your Savior and your Lord who died on the cross for your sins, that the only way to be made right with God is through acknowledging the glorious, good mercy of Jesus who died on the cross as your substitute, we invite you to come to Christ. Consider the gospel of grace. David's forgiveness and mine has the same reference point, the cross. And thirdly, worship focuses and renews and empowers us. It, it, when we really worship, it gets us out of the, the, uh, the blathering zeitgeist, the spirit of the age that just we hear all the time. And, and it really centers us. It gives us a purpose and joy and release and gladness and laughter, at times con conviction and, and repentance, but always leads to joy and happiness and fulfillment and purpose. I, I, I want that for you. It's interesting. This psalm is all about a man who is a multiple murderer, a, a heartless adulterer who may have forced himself upon Bathsheba, 
who was a liar, a coveter, who was filled with, with, with arrogance and pride. And, and, and not once in Psalm 51 does he say, Lord, here is how I'm dealing with my adultery, or here is how I'm dealing with my multiple murders. It's all about, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Let me hear joy and gladness. And, and I read that, and I think, you know, I think to myself, self, the, the, the issue in my life is not lust or anger or arrogance. The problem in my life is a lack of worship. And so we see people who have these issues, and we say, well, you need to filter on your computer, and you, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to be in support group. And that's true, but primarily you need to worship. Primarily you need to get a vision of the glad surrender that is yours as you know Jesus. If you have an anger problem, you may need to be in a 10-step program. I don't know about that, but, but, but you primarily need to be a worshiper, and then you do things out of the overflow of worship. Or if, you have a, if you're just consumed with materialism and, and, and that whole endless bog. You need to get God's perspective on that and get some counsel and get some help, but you primarily need to worship. See, my problem is not X, Y, and Z. My problem is a lack of worship, a lack of brokenness and joy and humility, a sense of arrogance or elitism that comes into your spirit instead of brokenness. And so, church, we need to worship. We need to worship on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, we need to leave here changed and challenged. Let's pray. Lord, this day we thank you um, that you are looking for men and women to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we want to be that type of person. To, to live with glad desperation, joyful sobriety. So Lord, Lift up our brothers and sisters. We prayed earlier, we pray for people who are struggling, especially the city of Charlotte today, that you'd have mercy. Thank you that you're the one who says in Galatians, there's neither male nor female in Christ, slave nor free men, Jew nor Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, but we are all one in Jesus. Thank you that the knowledge of Christ destroys the spirit of elitism or racism or zip codeism or whatever else can come into our spirit by showing us the mercy of the cross. Lord, we pray for those who are walking through hard times, especially today we pray for the Carroll family and the untimely death of, of Wes. And have mercy upon Mary and give us a hearts that are sensitive to those around us, Lord. Thank you, replace desperation with hope. You replace abject brokenness with a sense of rightness. So come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.